Hi everybody, this is Alf. Welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. And today my guest is going to be the one and only Eric Basmeyan. And I'm sorry if I butchered my, your surname, mate, but give it a try yourself. Yeah, that was the uh, one of the best pronunciations. So I've, I've had everything, so that's, uh, that's pretty good. Welcome here. And as you guys know, this is part of the educational series I'm going to run for uh, Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. We're going to chat about macro content and zoom back and try to provide some evergreen macro and financial educations with my guests. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you don't want to miss these videos in general. But let's get started, Eric. So the first question I want to ask you today is about the housing market. It's an incredibly important and systematic part of, um, of GDP and the economy in general and, and a very large asset class, actually. And some things are moving. So do you want to give us your overlook on the housing market? Yeah, sure. So um, just to rewind one second to provide viewers with an idea of how I look at the macro landscape, I track what are called coincident economic indicators, which would be things like income, consumption, production, and employment. Those are kind of what define the trend in the economy. But in order to get an indication of where those coincident indicators are heading, you need to look at leading economic indicators. And the housing market tends to fall in the leading indicator bucket, which is why it's so important when, we, when we're trying to study cyclical economic trends. And the reason that the housing market falls into the leading indicator category are, are several, namely, is that it has the highest sensitivity to interest rates uh, of any other sector of the US economy. So when interest rates move, the housing sector tends to respond uh, fairly, um, fairly aggressively. The, the second thing is it's a relatively big ticket item. So it, it takes, um, it is something that consumers will pull back on first if they're feeling uh, stretched or they have weak sentiment. And then also it has tremendous ripple and knock-on effects later down the line. You think of buying a new home, you have to furnish the new home, which requires appliances, which requires a manufacturing process. There's furniture, there are uh, contractors, there's maintenance outside of the house. So the, the housing sector is an unbelievable economic engine that has ripple effects all the way down the line, which is why it's such an important leading indicator of these coincident um, data points that we track, like broad consumption, broad employment, and things like that. When we look at the landscape now, one of the things that's moving is interest rates. In fact, if we look at interest rates on an 18-month basis, which is what I like to do, because historically, changes in interest rates roughly have about an 18-month lead time over some of these uh, changes, we have one of the largest 18-month changes in interest rates over the last 30 or 40 years. I track a composite of interest rates, which includes mortgage rates, corporate rates, and short-term treasury rates. And by my last measure, interest rates are up 240 basis points over the last 18 months on that composite. That's the largest, basically, interest rate shock the economy's ever experienced over the last 40 years. So why is that important? That's important because part of that increases mortgage rates. So what we're going to see is as these mortgage rates rise, the next step in the sequence would be a significant pullback in purchase applications, people applying for, for, for uh, mortgages on, on new homes. 
The last data point from the Mortgage Bankers Association showed that purchases, not refinances, strictly purchases are contracting at a 26% annualized rate. So now we have a rise in interest rates. We have a pullback in purchase applications. The next step would be we would see a pullback in permit activity. And once you see a decline in permit activity, then you'd see a slowdown in new construction. Once you see a slowdown in new construction, now we're starting to get to the stages that are really going to have a negative impact on GDP growth because the, the, the new residential construction is a very volatile component of, of GDP, which uh, impacts employment in the construction sector. And it feeds through to, to new orders of durable goods. So if we were to zoom back, what we see is a record rise in mortgage rates. And we see uh, the consensus, in my view, is still very reluctant to believe that this record interest rate shock is going to slow the housing sector down even a little bit, let alone quite significantly. And Eric, one of the pushbacks we uh, receive, I say we because I tend to agree on a slowdown of the housing market here, is that, yes, the demand side of the equation will be impacted by the fact that mortgage rates have gone up that much, while wages haven't really um, you know, follow the same path, especially adjusted for inflation, not at all. Um, but the supply side of the housing market equation, that's still very tight. So what do you make of that argument? Yeah, that's something that we hear quite regularly. There's a few points that I'd like to make on that. One is that uh, when we look at the structural demand picture for real estate, uh, from a long-term perspective. This wouldn't be an outlook for six months, but if you look at what's the outlook for real estate over the next 10 years, let's say, it's pretty much all driven by demographics. Primarily the, the growth rate of the population in the 25 to 54 year old bracket. And when we look at that for the United States, it's not that optimistic. There's likely to be basically no population growth in the 25 to 54 year old bracket over the next 10 years. Whereas if we look back over the last uh, 20 years, that, that segment of the population was growing. So when people do these analyses of supply, they're taking a, a linear or a geometric average of the last 40 years. And they're saying supply is normally here. It's lower today than the historical average. Therefore, supply is, is scarce. But what they're not factoring in is that the demand curve is sloped downward. So that average shouldn't be linear, it should follow the demand curve downward. The, the second point that I would make is that when everyone talks about the housing shortage, they're always talking about single family homes. And yes, there is a, a, a significant reduction in the, the supply of single family homes because we overbuilt single family homes tremendously in 2004, five and six, it was way above historical averages then it crashed pretty significantly and it hasn't recovered anywhere near where it was. However, what was the primary driver of growth this economic cycle was multifamily home construction, apartment buildings. There are apartment buildings going up everywhere and it's not just anecdote, you can see in the economic data that multifamily construction has, has increased quite significantly, which doesn't often get factored into these narratives of supply. Most people are focused on single family. So if you look at total housing units, which includes multifamily apartments as well as single family on a per capita basis, it's basically as high as it was in 2006. So if everyone has demand for single family homes now, 
we, we, we potentially have a change in preference after COVID. A lot of people were living in cities. They want to move to suburbs. So there's a shortage of, um, of single family homes, but that would mean that there would be a surplus of multifamily apartments. So my pushback on the supply narrative is, is basically that the, the structural demand curve is sloped downward because of demographics. And the supply narrative is focused on single family rather than total units because multifamily has been the driver of construction the last 10 years. Very interesting, Eric. And the other thing I would like to add is a lot of the pushback I receive on a slowdown of the housing market uh, narrative is that, well, people, I mean, mortgage rates, what are you talking about? Half people just buy it in cash. And this is a lot of anecdotal evidence. But if you look into the data, 85% of um, house purchases across the world in developed markets happen backed by a mortgage. So it's only 15% of uh purchases that happen without a mortgage paid in cash. So mortgage rates are very important. And even if the supply of single family homes is restricted, there are some income bottlenecks here. I mean, your mortgage rate has gone up from 3% to above 5% 30 year fixed mortgage rates in America in a year, while your salary adjusted for inflation has on medium terms goes gone down by maybe 3% last year, which means as house prices have gone up 20%, on a year-on-year basis and your mortgage rate is higher by two percentage point, your mortgage installment per month is up by almost 40% on a median house while your wage hasn't changed. So supply might be scarce even in single family homes, but you just can't afford anything uh, that is close to median if you have a median salary. I mean, that's how it works, right? Right. And, and that was a beautiful description. What you're describing is the rate of change, right? Because one thing that you hear is, yes, mortgage rates have gone from two and a half to five, but they're still quote unquote low, right? Low by historical standards. And what really matters in macro in basically anything is the rate of change. And we're seeing a significant rate of change increase in mortgage uh, rates, which is causing a very significant rate of change increase in that monthly payment that you just outlined. So you can't look at it and say mortgage rates are lower than they were in 1990, therefore everything's fine. There was a level of economic activity that was associated with 2.5% mortgage rates. Now the rate's five. There's going to be a lower level of activity that's associated with that change. And Eric, let's uh, discuss for a second on a broader picture. You started already doing that before. Um, why is the housing market from a wealth effect perspective, an important indicator that then basically causes second round effects uh, in the economy when prices either go up very quick or go down very quick. What happens on a balance sheet of a consumer when that happens? Well, I mean, the, the housing uh, or, or a home is generally the largest asset that, that consumer owns and it's extremely leveraged. Right, most people put twenty percent down on a house, which means they're five to one levered uh, on the house. If anyone levered their stock portfolio five to one, they would think that's crazy, right? So whenever home prices decline, even if there's a five or ten percent change in the value of the home on a net worth basis, that's extremely significant given the embedded leverage in in the uh, home price because most people are, you know, only own twenty, thirty, forty percent of the house. So on a balance sheet perspective, anytime there's a decline in home prices, it really takes a significant chunk out of the net worth of, of a household. Um, and, and that has a pretty significant negative effect. You know, there are some papers that study the wealth effect and the wealth effect tends to be negligible for stock prices, but there is some discernible wealth effect from home prices. 
home prices have a stronger wealth effect than stock prices, which is why we've seen you know, a tremendous balloon in stock prices over the last 10 or 15 years, very little impact to overall consumption. Home prices declining, however, would trigger a negative wealth effect. At least that's what the research does imply. Yeah, it's a very smart remark. And um, one statistic I want the BlockWorks listeners and any listener on YouTube actually to, to remember is that if I sum the market cap of the residential real estate market, the commercial real estate market and agricultural land, so I basically sum anything that is defined as, as real estate, I reach something like $300 trillion in market cap. And the global equity market is $100 trillion. That's and the bond market is $125 trillion. So I need to sum together the bond and the equity market globally to come anywhere close to the real estate market. That's because, as Eric has just said, it's a highly leveraged market where 85% of purchases happen to be backed by a mortgage, which provides an inherent leverage on average of four to five times to one, which is non-existent when you purchase an equity or a bond. Well, it is existent, but definitely not as broadly used as it is in, in the real estate market. It's very important to watch what's happening. Uh, as we are talking about the housing market, there has been a discussion about mortgage-backed securities, Eric, being one of the reasons why mortgage rates were extremely low, even lower than they would have been otherwise um, in 2021 because of the large purchases by the Fed in mortgage-backed securities. This is quickly coming to an end. And actually, um, one can say, reversing, even though they're not going to sell actively MBS to start with, but they're going to shrink the balance sheet and MBS are one of the first targets from the Fed. So what is the, the, the link between mortgage-backed securities, mortgage rates and the housing market? And do you think this QT operation might impact even uh, more the housing market? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably the, the most under uh, most underappreciated part of the, of the quantitative tightening operation. When we hear about quantitative tightening, um, the most common arguments tend to flow something like interest rates or treasury rates are a terrible place to be during quantitative tightening because the supply of bonds is increasing and the number of buyers are decreasing. But that really is only the first uh, order effect of what's going on here. Because the mortgage rate is going to rise for two reasons, right? The, the benchmark treasury rate is going to come up, but also the spread between the treasury rate and the mortgage rate is going to rise as well. So, so the impact on the mortgage rate, and this is something that we've seen over the last six, six months, the impact on the mortgage rate has been much more extreme than the impact on the treasury rate. And why is that important? Because that's going to feed through to uh, a slowdown in the, in the um, construction of the housing sector, which is going to pull GDP growth down. Uh, when, when talking about quantitative tightening, Alf, I want to read a quote for the listeners. Uh, it's by Henry Hazlitt from the book Economics in One Lesson. It's a very, very good book. It's very easy to understand. I recommend everyone read it. And I don't say this with any insinuation that I'm a good economist. I say this humbly. But what the quote says is, in this lies the whole difference between good economics and bad. The bad economist sees only what immediately strikes the eye. The good economist looks beyond. The bad economist sees only the direct consequences of a proposed course. The good economist looks also at the longer and indirect consequences. 
Why is that important when we talk about quantitative tightening? Because the first order consequences are increased supply of treasuries, less buyers. That means treasury rates have to go up. But what are the longer and indirect consequences? The longer and indirect consequences, Alf, are a rise in mortgage rates, a rise in corporate rates, right? If corporate rates rise, that would reduce corporate profitability. It would reduce corporate margins. If corporations have less profits or lower margins, they have to do something to make that back. That means they either have to reduce their workforce, they have to slow their capital expenditures. If mortgage rates rise and there's a slowdown in housing activity, that's gonna reduce GDP growth. So in the final analysis, something like treasury rates may actually decline during an activity like quantitative tightening because of the, effect, the longer effect on GDP growth. So I think it's important for anyone when they're looking at any economic puzzle to remember that quote and say, hey, I can't just stop at the first order consequences. I need to look beyond at what the longer and indirect consequences of this action are. I mean, this is such a great description. Let's spend some time there. So I managed a large bond portfolio until a few months ago, and um, I can um, testify to the fact that if the demand supply imbalance in bonds changes very quickly, then the first reaction is that investors and primary dealers will have to make some room in their balance sheet and in their risk taking to basically be able to absorb this new amount of bonds that before was maybe absorbed on a net basis by a price inelastic buyer like the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or whoever it is, right? When this situation changes very quickly, then obviously I need to adjust myself and as a risk taker, I need to demand a certain premium, which means yields probably try to move up in the very first phase. To be noticed as this yield moving up is a um, very vicious move because it more very often comes from risk premium, from real interest rates moving up, even if the economy isn't improving at all. It's literally just the, uh, the, the basically investors puking at this situation and having to make space on their balance sheet and their risk taking to absorb the new supply coming. That's the first round effect and nobody debates that. I've seen that happening myself. I've done that myself even. So we understand that. On a second round effect, you mentioned something I would like you to elaborate a bit further on that, which is when, if I am an investor, I need to make more room to absorb treasuries. Th those are risk-free uh, instruments that return me a higher yield. My appetite to allocate capital towards lower tiers of the capital structure, corporate bonds, junk bonds, equities, will obviously be less as a result. And on top of that, because corporates will find it more expensive to borrow, they will also have to reconsider their leveraged business models, whether they work or not at a higher, more expensive um, corporate borrowing level, same for mortgage rates. And why would that, over the long term, lower interest rate? That's my question. So this is where we, we get into this, trying to get to the final analysis. So, so now we have corporates... Uh, that are faced with higher interest rates or the private sector faced with higher interest rates in, in the term uh, in, in terms of mortgages. But if we go with corporates, let's say, corporates uh, are perpetual issuers of debt and the corporate sector in the United States is quite leveraged. If you look at you know business sector debt to GDP, it's one of the highest on, on record. So the corporate sector has a tremendous amount of debt and a lot of this debt uh, rolls every couple of years. 
you know, corporates don't go out there and borrow all of their uh, money at 30 year term. A lot of this money is borrowed on five year term or two year term. So every couple of months, a new corporate has to roll over existing debt. And now they're going to roll over this debt into 200 basis point higher mortgage rates. And they often don't have the option to not roll the debt because the business activity that they're currently conducting was financed. So it's a necessity that they have to roll the debt and they have to roll it into a higher interest rate. So the interest expense on the private sector for corporates is going to go up. And if interest expense go up, goes up, particularly while the economy is slowing, so top line revenue growth is cresting and coming down while interest expense is coming up, that immediately crushes corporate margins. And corporations are reluctant to report a reduction in margins because their stock price tends to get punished if margins are, are getting squeezed. So they, they are forced to take action to preserve those margins and preserve that profitability, which means that they have to find uh, ancillary expenses to cut in order to compensate for that increased uh, amount of, of interest expense. And generally, that either comes in the form of reduced capital expenditures or uh, a reduction in employment. And uh, one of the important parts about this rise in interest rates is that, you know, when interest rates rise, just because interest rates go to 3%, let's say, doesn't mean that the world's gonna to come to an end tomorrow. It's about how long the interest rates stay there because the longer they stay there, the more corporations are going to be faced with that consequence of rolling into higher rates. So the, the, the sequence generally tends to be a rise in interest rates leads to a uh, reduction in corporate margins, which, uh, which would then lead to a reduction in, in, in something like new orders or capital expenditures, uh, and uh, then a reduction in hours worked. Hours worked tends to lead employment because it's a less binding activity. It's easier to reduce some somebody's hours versus fire someone and then hire someone if something turns around. So that's generally how it ends up leading to lower GDP growth. You have less employment, uh, less capital expenditures. And then the, the long-term treasury rate, despite conventional wisdom, is very much tethered to the expectations of nominal GDP growth. So if the Federal Reserve is going to engage in a very aggressive quantitative tightening exercise, as you just mentioned, the first order effect may be that the interest rates rise, but the more extreme the policy is and the more sort of the sharper that rise in the first phase is, the more certain that the GDP growth will decline in the final analysis, which means that the rates are going to go up, but they can't stay up. They'll come down. So Eric, you are fighting the conventional wisdom that the Federal Reserve has been the reason why interest rates have been this low for this long and actually trending lower on a trend basis over the last 40 years in a relentless way, effectively. And you're telling us that this is not because of the Fed, but it's because of nominal GDP expected to be low and declining over the very long term. If that is the case, what's driving this lower potential GDP? Exactly. So when we when we zoom back and we look at what drives the trend over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we're really talking about two factors, which is the growth rate of the population and the growth rate of productivity. How many people are there and how productive are those people? That's generally what's going to drive the longer run trend. And in the United States, similar to uh, all the other developed economies, 
the growth rate of the population is coming down and it's coming down extremely sharply. What's actually quite alarming about the demographic picture is that over the last two or three years, the demographics have deteriorated much sharper than what the estimates have projected. So we have a declining trend in, in the growth rate of the population. It's still positive, still positive population growth, but it's coming down. And then you say, okay, well, then we have to look at productivity. Well, productivity is impacted mainly by debt. So as the economy has become increasingly over-indebted, and I'm not just talking about public sector debt, I'm talking about the whole pie. I'm talking about public, private, household, financial sector, the whole pie. As the level of debt increases, that suppresses productivity growth. It suppresses the trend potential. So what we have going on is we have declining population growth with increasing debt, which means that basically we have a double whammy of declining population and declining productivity that's keeping a lid on the economy's secular potential to grow. And Eric, why are you so keen on assuming that higher debt levels, both public and private, would suppress productivity trends? So when we look at debt, there is a diminishing marginal returns curve, which, which effectively says that at low levels of debt, it's beneficial to growth and you, get, and you get increasing outputs. Then it flattens out and then it starts to turn down. And, and the reason for that is as these debt levels get higher and higher, and I'm talking about the whole thing, we can talk maybe about public uh, in a separate discussion. But essentially, the only way that debt can increase productivity is if the use of the capital generates an income stream. Because if the use of the capital does not generate an income stream sufficient to repay, by definition, you have to divert some future source of income to repay that debt capital. So what we see is as the debt levels start to rise, they, the, the debt starts to be used or the capital starts to be used in ways that are tremendously unproductive, ways that are not generating income streams. And what that does to the economy is, all it, is, is that it, it, it guarantees that down the road, income will have to be diverted from potential, potentially productive sources to repay uh, activities that proved to be unproductive. So uh, when debt levels get to 90, 100, 120% in any sector, it's unlikely that that capital can be put to use in any way that's productive. And therefore, you have to, you have to divert income from productive sources to repay it. And actually, to make sure that you can service this high load of debt, uh, despite your income stream, your ability to produce cash flow maybe hasn't gone up that much structurally speaking over time the only way to be able to afford that is that if real borrowing costs decline over time which is what we have been seeing over the last 40 years and i want to just close the circle back by saying well my father or you know your father or whoever might have said that you know their house price was much much lower a while ago correct their salary in uh, real, in you know, real purchasing power terms is probably also lower 40 or 30 years ago than it is today, because real wages have been going up about 1% a year over the last 20, 30 years. But these borrowing costs were much higher. 
And so today, house prices are much higher than they were 40 years ago because mortgage rates adjusted for inflation expectations around about you know a year ago, they were 0%. You had a 3% mortgage and 2.5% inflation expectation by the consumers over the very long term. That's basically no real borrowing cost, which therefore allows you to be able to afford something that costs more. So if, if these real borrowing costs are not going down, then house prices and any asset price actually cannot be sustainably higher because you wouldn't be able to service liabilities because you know your, your cash flows aren't going up really. So it's all interconnected. But um, Eric, your assumption, if I hear you correctly, is that the housing market is going to basically slow down a bit here. And I want to get your take on what is a bit actually uh, is, is more or just a bit and right. uh, what does this do to gdp growth this year and to several asset classes as well yeah so so my concern here over the next six to eight months i'll say is that if we if we look at aggregate economic growth and this morning we just received q1 gdp and i like to look at real final sales which excludes the uh, inventory component because it's quite volatile and if we look at real final sales, and I like to look at things on a six-month growth rate, so a two-quarter growth rate, essentially, real final sales have slowed to 1% as of this morning's report, as of Q1. So real economic growth, the trend level of real economic growth is only about 1% in real terms, despite what people think. That's dangerously close to zero, right? And the problem is that we now have the housing sector that looms in the balance. And the housing sector, as we described on this call, is a leading economic indicator. So if we have growth that's sitting at 1% and the housing sector is going to slow down, and that's a leading indicator, that means that GDP growth is going to slow further over the next six to eight months. And the problem here is that we're sitting at about 1%. So any further slowdown from here means that the growth rate on a trending basis, not on a quarterly basis, but on a trending basis is going to flirt with negative territory or, or cross negative territory. Um, as far as the magnitude of the housing slowdown, my work is generally focused on the rate of change or the direction. Uh, only secondarily do I focus on the magnitude because that's quite difficult to predict. There's a lot of factors going on. But given the magnitude of the change in interest rates being the, one of the largest on record, it would be quite conservative based on historical trends in the housing market to see something like a 10 or 15% pullback in volumes, not necessarily price, but volumes. And if the housing sector has a 10 to 15% slowdown in volume over the next six to eight months, it's going to be extremely difficult for the real growth rate to, to sustainably hover above that zero bound, given how close we are already. So um, the outlook over the next six months, I don't have an official recession in my forecast yet. There are several criteria that, that, that need to come through as well. But uh, the, the outlook over the next six months is one of recession risk that's rising rapidly, given how close the trending growth rate is already sitting near zero and that the direction going forward is still going to be downward given the, the, the leading pull of the housing sector. Now, what does that mean for asset prices? That's generally not a good setup for risk assets. We've seen a little bit of a paradigm shift over the last three months in risk assets where investors have uh, 
transitioned from a mentality of, yeah, okay, maybe growth is slowing, but it's just slowing to trend, Alf. Of course, growth had to slow to trend. We were way too high to begin with. And that mentality has shifted from, okay, growth is slowing to trend to, oh, wait, growth is actually 1%. It's way below trend. We're actually getting closer to recession than, than I thought. And I think over the next six months, investors are going to have another paradigm shift where growth is going to go from below trend to, oh, crap, maybe a recession is a lot more likely than, than I had thought. And I believe something that you've documented extremely well, that, that earnings estimates are, are, as you say, in la-la land, given, given that forecast. And, and so I would, I would suggest that if this forecast that I have is correct, we would see a pretty sizable reduction in, in earnings estimates, and that's not likely to be kind for risk assets broadly. For the record, my earnings estimate for the S&P 500 this year are very close to 0%, and analysts are expecting, I don't know whether they're correcting that already, but last week they were at 11% year on yeah. year, and that's why I defined that la-la land, but maybe I'm wrong, who knows. Yeah. Eric, uh, thank you for this amazing interview. I want to make sure that people can find you. For the few people that don't know you yet, shame on you, but now you know Eric and you can't <laughs> miss any of his work. So where can they find, it, find you, Eric? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much, Alf. Um, I am on Twitter at EPB Research, and I also publish um, monthly research on my website, epbmacroresearch.com. I publish two reports. I publish one that covers cyclical economic trends, sort of the six to 18 month outlook, a lot of which what we just described. And then I also publish one on a quarterly basis, which outlines secular economic trends. Both of those reports are available uh, on my site, epbmacroresearch.com. Guys, I've had the chance to interact with Eric multiple times, both on an interview basis and looking at his work and uh, sharing thoughts on Twitter. I can only recommend following Eric and uh, subscribing to his work. If you want to know more about what I do as well, you can go on my free newsletter. It's called The Macro Compass. No charge. Just go in there. It's a weekly piece. I talk about you know macro insights, try to deliver some financial education, sometimes some investment ideas. Some I get right, some I get wrong. We try together. Um, yeah. Well, the feeling's mutual, Alf, and you've been a pioneer in educating the, the macro and Twitter community, so I appreciate that as well. Thank you. Very much appreciated. And uh, last call, guys, subscribe to the YouTube channel from Blockworks Macro. We're going to see many more of these interviews together. Eric, thank you for uh, being here with us. Thanks, Alf. Thanks, Alf.